Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good today, Tim. I was feeling a little bit frustrated after the conversation that the listeners are about to hear concluded. I am sure that they will share in our collective frustration after they hear our guest today describe her situation. But before we get to that, I'm frustrated that I don't know how you are. So help me, you know, at least on that level. I am doing great over here. I am frustrated. I'm very frustrated about the unsolved murder of Sean O'Brien from Cranston, Rhode Island. Our guest, Natalia St. Louis's father, Sean O'Brien, did not show up to work on July 22nd, 2006. So this murder goes back a little ways. And I have to say it's inexcusable of the Cranston, Rhode Island police um, to have put Natalia in the situation that she's in and having to fight for justice for her father in the way she is fighting, which is completely admirable. She has tackled TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and she's got a website, justiceforshawnobryan.com. Check that out and follow her on TikTok. That's where I came across this case and her account. It's tiktok.com slash N-N-S-T-L-O. And she is truly a force that is harnessing all of the media, the social media, the regular media, podcasting. She's harnessing everything so that she can raise the visibility on this failed investigation into her father's death or murder. And she has no problem hiding her frustration with law enforcement as they've just dropped the ball for 17 years. Well, maybe not 17 years. She said the initial investigation seemed to be off to a good start. But after that, I mean, it's been like 15 years of basically nothing. And she had a really good answer when asked what the purpose of raising visibility is for her father's death. Love the answer that she gave because it does put pressure on law enforcement, especially if you listen to this and you come away feeling as frustrated and confused as we did. Which I think you will. So, yeah, definitely follow the links in the show notes and follow Natalia's search for justice for her father, Sean O'Brien. He definitely deserves justice, and we are here to support. So we'd appreciate it if you share this episode, share the social media posts. That would really help. And in addition to all of those resources that you just pointed out, Tim, people can also go to Uncovered.com and you can search Sean O'Brien, that's Sean with a W. The work that they put into all of that information on their website, the overview, the timeline, it's really great. And you'll be able to understand what happened in the days before and the days after Sean's death. So highly recommend you go to Uncovered.com to get some info on Sean O'Brien. And a lot of people have been ringing me up texting me, asking where to find us on social media, and I just don't know where to tell them to go. Can you uh, help me out here? Yeah, listeners can follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here, and we'll be right back with Natalia St. Louis. Welcome to the podcast. Natalia, how are you today? I'm well. How are you? We're doing very well. Uh, we did start off the conversation offline before we started recording. We did the whole like talking about the weather because it's unseasonably warm where we're at. Um, but it's always difficult to enter into these conversations with people who have been affected by tragedy like you've been affected. So we just really appreciate you joining us today to talk about your dad. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. Can you start by uh, telling us a little bit about you? 
Sure. So um, I'm 30 years old. I live in Rhode Island. I'm an educator. I've been in education since I graduated college. I don't see myself doing anything else. I spend a lot of time with my family. My family is the, the biggest thing in my life right now. So that's me in a nutshell. What field of education do you specialize in? I work in special education. Oh, that's excellent. Good for you. Nice. And you said that that was something that you had always been interested in and that you don't see yourself doing anything else? Yeah. No, I, I wanted to be a teacher from when I was little. Um, and I did a few years in special education. I went into administration. Uh, this is my second year. And now I'm going to transition back to teaching again. I just I missed it too much. So um, heading back to teaching next year. Wow. Well, good for you. And thank you for uh, for doing what you do, because that is important work. And we met you on social media. We saw what you were doing on TikTok specifically, um, trying to raise awareness for your dad's case. Um, well done with that. You're, you're really you. doing a great job reaching people. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing on social media? What is your mission? We started with a Facebook and a website, um, and that you know got a little bit of traction um, following some of the initial media coverage in 2021 around my dad's case. And then we moved on to Twitter, and we saw that there was you know a, there were a few more hits there. And then I saw you know some other people, some other family members that kind of went viral doing this whole TikTok thing, getting their you know family's cases solved, or at least raising awareness about them. So that was where uh, my family and I thought you know, making some TikToks and getting people interested in the case might gain some more interest and, and, you know, bring awareness to it. That's amazing. When you say awareness, I understand like public awareness, but is there a particular outlet that you're targeting like media, you know, local media or where is the, uh, where's the other part of that? Everybody is aware of this. What do they do now? Yeah. So I think, getting local media is important. Getting getting any media is important. Um, one of the first things I did when I started looking into this case again, you know, in 2021 was I posted on Reddit and there were a bunch of people like commenting from Rhode Island that said, I've never heard about this case, didn't even know it existed, didn't know his name, didn't, had no idea. Um, so that was one of my main goals was to get my dad's name out there um, so that people knew that he wasn't just somebody that passed away in 2006. It, you know, this is something that's a little bit more suspicious. Um, and then getting some local media would is really my goal. Um, the people that are involved are, are local to Rhode Island. So I think getting the name out there and, and letting people know, like, I'm not stopping and, and um, we're still aware of the case. We're still like pursuing the case. It's, it didn't just go away back in 2006. That's that's my big goal is to kind of reach the people that are involved so that somebody will come forward. Somebody knows something. So, yeah, totally. And we hear these stories a lot and there really isn't a, a you know, a right or wrong answer to that. You just kind of put everything out there and you see what happens. You right. want to make sure that anybody who's responsible for this will see that no one is forgetting your dad's name. So let's not forget his name right now. I don't think we've said it yet. Is Your father's name was Sean O'Brien, correct? Yep. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about him and your life uh, prior to his uh, tragic death? My dad was just an all around awesome guy. He was like, he would give you the shirt off his back. Like, I mean that literally, like I know people say that about a lot of people, but he would give you like the last dollar in his pocket if you needed it. Um, he was just kind of like a stand up guy. He, you know, he would get your chair at the restaurant. He would always pick up the tab. Like he was just that kind of guy. Like he was just a good 
guy all around. I think he modeled what like a good husband would look like in the future and in that type of thing. My parents split up when I was two and then they reconnected again when I was nine. So, and then he ultimately passed away when I was 13. So I only had a short time with him. So when people, you know, ask me, you know, like memories about my dad or like, it's tough because I think when we were in it, we didn't think this is going to be so short lived that you better commit all of this to memory. It was just, we enjoyed the moments that we had together. He was a lot of fun. He was always dancing. He was always singing. Like the music was always up on the radio. Um, he loved a good meal. Like if we went out somewhere, he was just, he was just all about like eating well. Um, he liked Italian restaurants. So like that was his jam. We would go out to Italian restaurants all the time. He was just a good guy. He was, he was a lot of fun. Well, he sure sounds like it. Seriously, yeah. And I can't not let this go. You said that he would be the first to start dancing, listening to music. Like, What was the music that he liked? What type of music was, what type of music would get him up to dance? So his favorite song was Let's Get Married, the remix by Jagged Edge. Which was like, in 2006, it was like, you know, a bigger song. So that was like his jam. He was into like, you know, hip hop and like current, like current music. So Let's Get Married is my family still, that's the first song we played at a party or like the, you know, the song that like at my wedding, it was the song that we played going from like meals to party time. Like we played that song to kind of get everybody on the dance floor. So that was his jam. What did he do for work? He was a carpenter. Um, He did that from when he was young. Can you tell us a a bit about the circumstances uh, surrounding his death? Yeah. So on um, Friday, July 21st, 2006, my mom and I went by my dad's apartment. They were living separately at the time. And we were supposed to go to a festival that night. And he had just gotten home from work. He was going to take a shower. We brought him a sandwich just to feed him because that was his thing. We had to make sure we fed him before we went places. And um, I had a headache that night. So we decided we won't go out tonight. We'll go out the next night. He was living in a duplex apartment. He was living in the basement portion. So he sublet from the man who was renting the whole portion of the apartment. There had been a lot of tension between him, um, his landlord and his landlord's girlfriend. So he, on that Friday night, pointed to the driveway and he said, she's home. I don't want to be here, alluding to his landlord's girlfriend. Um, Can you take me to the bar down the street? Can you take me to Billy's down the street? So we were like, all right, that's fine. Dropped him off at Billy's. And that was the last time we saw him alive. On Saturday morning, he typically every morning would call my mom before work, let her know he was up, he was getting ready for the day. Um, And he didn't call that Saturday morning. He was supposed to go to work. And then Saturday around 6 o'clock, my mom got a call um, from his sister, Karen, that he was being rushed to Rhode Island Hospital. He had been found unconscious in his basement apartment. Karen found him. They had reported he had been in a seizure for over an hour, but it's still kind of unclear if he ever had a seizure to begin with. He he had been known to have seizures sometimes, but not not for that length of time. I mean, nobody does. So that's kind of what started the whole week-long thing around his death. Going back to what you said about why your father didn't want to be in his own apartment, he said that she's there, meaning the significant other of the person who owned the building, and, and he didn't want to be there when she was there? Yeah, so so the guy that he rented from, he rented the building from somebody else. He rented that portion of the building from somebody else. It had gotten more and more contentious um, as the year or so went on. There had been physical altercations, 
verbal fights. Like there had just been a lot of tension around being in the house and he was actually looking for an apartment um, with his other sister, Erin, at the time. So he, he didn't want to be there if she was there. What were the arguments about? Um, it's it's kind of unclear what the arguments were about. Um, I don't ever want to like drag someone else through mud, but they were known drinkers and drug users. Um, so there were times that she would be, you know, drunk or on drugs and would come downstairs and fight with my dad. And I think she wanted my dad out of the apartment, but the man who he rented from, he was paying like 85% of the total rent for the house, for the, the apartment. So like if you're the landlord, you're not kicking him out anytime soon. So I think there was just tension around him being there in general. Do you think that there would have been tension around anybody in that apartment, just given what you know about this person and their personality? Yeah, I think I think whoever lived there, there would have been tension. My dad was there prior to the landlord meeting this woman. So, you know, I don't know if like there was this. I don't know. But yeah, I think anyone anyone being there would have kind of set her off. And uh, was she arrested the night before your father was found? So there is a lot of weirdness around that. Um, I had requested a 911 call log from Cranston police to my dad's address. I wanted to know how many calls had been made to the house, when they had been made, all of those things. Cause I was trying to, you know, build this case that there were other incidents prior to this incident that police had responded to that they weren't, they didn't handle appropriately, that there were assaults and there were calls made to the address. Like it was a known address. So when you respond to this call, it should have flagged something in your mind. And there's a call for Friday morning at like 10.08 a.m. And so when I asked about that call, they said it doesn't exist. When I asked again later about that call, they gave me an arrest report from Wednesday, July 26th. They say that when they went to go talk to the landlord and his girlfriend, the landlord had scratches on his face and his girlfriend said, oh, I did that. And Rhode Island has mandatory domestic abuse laws. So she was arrested on the spot for scratching his face. She claims that it happened on Friday night. So the police say they backdated the 911 call to Friday night, which doesn't make sense to me, but that's the explanation that I was given. Well, first, I'd like to commend Rhode Island for having that law in place where someone can get arrested sight unseen oh, for yeah. the most part like yeah like that's good for them um but did they know the circumstances of your father's death at that time yeah so my mom had walked into the police station on um wednesday july 26th my dad passed on the 25th so my mom walked in the next morning after taking note of all of his injuries and taking note of like the four day um span of time that we had just been through in the hospital she had all of her notes ready she walked into the police station and let them know something happened, something's going on. And they turned around and immediately went to the apartment to question his landlord and the girlfriend. And so that's when they saw the scratches on his face and they brought him down to the station and, you know, all of that happened. Okay. So there's really not a lot of uh, criticizing, thankfully, that we can do for with law enforcement at that point, right? Because even if they saw her and they thought that she might have something to do with your father's death, they used that law for the domestic abuse to at least arrest her, like detain her and bring her in. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I think 
some of our frustration initially was when he was in the hospital, we did make like three or four calls to police to let them know that the doctors are kind of saying like something's not adding up. Um, and they didn't go mm. seal the crime scene until the 26th or the 27th. So, you know, people are living in the house and kind of going about their business and, and going in my dad's apartment. So that was that was like the initial frustration with police. But following that, they did take the landlord and his girlfriend's statement. They they interviewed them together in the same room and they allowed his girlfriend to write his statement for him because he was too nervous to write his statement. So, you know. Okay, I'll I'll pull back on my comment yeah. there a little bit. I'll I'll amend it a little bit. That's not. <laughs> and again, that's. I mean, I'm not a cop, but I wouldn't. I mean, that doesn't make sense. A, a lot of that stuff we I found out years later, like the statement thing. I found out years later. Um, we knew they didn't steal the crime scene, but I will always give them credit where credits due. That you know, from when they finally did seal the crime scene, they did do an investigation. Um, they interviewed people. They went to like the landfill to look for possible weapons they you know they they did an investigation at the time and the police do consider the landlord and his girlfriend as persons of interest is that correct and is that still true if that's true yeah so they did say that at the time they had told um one of the news reports that came out in 2007 they did say that to them since then they have you know behind closed doors and in meetings with me said we know they did it we just can't prove it so that's where it stands now at what point did it become not a seizure and obviously foul play? And what happened to alert people in the first place that this was a seizure? So I think it was the other way around. I think from police perspective and very initially, very, very early on, it was foul play. And then over time, because the initial report when medics responded was he had been in a seizure, it was kind of that fallback of like, well, we couldn't prove it. But remember, there was this other theory, the seizure theory. So we can go back to that. But they had, like I said, they did an investigation from, you know, the week that he passed all the way through 2007. You know, there are search warrants that say explicitly, like, we suspect foul play. There's blood in areas it doesn't need to be. There is, There were altercations between the people living in the apartment. So they... I think it was that they initially thought foul play. And then, like I said, they fell back on the seizure theory very quickly. Where did the seizure theory start? So when my aunt Karen arrived at the house, she got there uh, Saturday night. The landlord came out of the apartment and said, you have to come quick. Sean's been in a seizure for over an hour. So she finds him lying face down, pool of blood. Um, he's in only his boxers, which was very like uncharacteristic of my dad. He would only be in his boxes if he was going to bed. Like, he was so modest. She, When she called 911, she said, my my brother's having a seizure. So that's what was initially reported. Ah, I see. So the neighbor said he's been having a seizure for over an hour. So that's where she was thinking. No other reason to think other, other yeah. than that. And that's what she reported to 911 during the call. Right. Did the neighbor ever say, like, why he didn't call anybody? No. So he, um, he actually said in his statement, which they won't give me a copy of obvious reasons. I get it. Um, but they did show me at the station that he went downstairs at one point and my dad was hanging out and watching the ball game. He went downstairs a little later and I think he said he was having a seizure. 
went downstairs an hour later, or that's when Karen arrived. He was still having a seizure, but at some point he put a load of clothes in. So he knows it was about an hour that my dad had been down there possibly having a seizure. And what what is the official cause of death? Blunt force trauma, and it's undetermined. Um, the medical examiner can't rule it a homicide. He says that he needs more information from the police. And the police say they can't really do anything because the medical examiner won't rule it a homicide. So it's this big, like, finger-pointing game. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I'm wondering, is there some sort of, like manslaughter charge that can be issued for the neighbor for seeing somebody have a seizure or not doing anything like yeah is that like some sort of manslaughter somehow so it's so it's the landlord um who lived upstairs and oh he, landlord yeah yeah so he um we asked that at the time about you know like a lesser charge because he left him for so long and at the time, the police told my family we don't want to charge him with anything like that because we want to go for the bigger charge down the road they were holding out for a murder charge. It's frustrating now looking back on it. And I know hindsight's twenty twenty, so I get where they were coming from. They thought, you know, I mean, they told us from the beginning, like this is open shot by the, they told us by the funeral, we would have an arrest would be made, which, you know, delayed a couple of days because of the autopsy, but by funeral time. But if they had just charged somebody then, I, you know, this could all be put to bed already. Sorry. I mean, I know that they probably had that thought in their heads when they told you that, but and they probably can't tell you anything further, but did they say anything further? Did they say, we're waiting for X or, or Y or Z? Or was there anything that they like gave you to indicate that there would be something more concrete? No, um, not that I know of. They were preparing to go, and I honestly, I, I'm not like super like familiar with the whole justice system as far as like the steps to go from an investigation to court or whatever. Um, but they, it was something about going to like grand jury or like they were bringing it to the attorney general. We were at that point and then everything just stopped. Yeah. Well, that seems very frustrating that, uh, there's some sort of finger pointing, um, coming back to the determination blunt force trauma that, that seems like that couldn't be, couldn't have anything to do with seizures um, unless I suppose you fall and hit your head. But was that what the evidence showed? So that is the like alternate theory is that while having a seizure, he fell and hit his head. He would have had to have fallen down a flight of stairs and where the stairs were in the apartment is nowhere near where he was found. So that's, and it sounds so like basic to me. So sometimes I feel myself like, is this really like, is this, is this, are these people serious? Like he wasn't found near the stairs. So how did he fall and hit his head down a flight of stairs if he wasn't found near the stairs? So this is, this is like one of the things that drives me nuts. They said he could have hit his head on, you know, a dresser or a bureau or something. There's not really evidence of that. There's not really evidence of a fall on the stairs. The medical examiner has said it was likely one blow. Um, he would not have gotten up afterwards. So wherever he was found is likely where it happened, which was in his bedroom. So there's not really evidence to support a fall. And, and if you really look at, you know, I've done a lot of research on like the medical terminology and all of the, the injuries that he sustained. And a lot of them just, you can't get them from a fall. You, you wouldn't get bruising on one side because your brain shifted to the other. It just, it doesn't happen that way. 
um, it would it would really be a strike from like a bat or a hammer or something like that. And he was found right next to his bed, correct? Yeah. So he was kind of wedged in a funny way between his bed and his dresser. His feet were facing the door and his head was in towards the bedroom. And was there blood on the bed or just like a blood pool by his head? So there was blood pools around his head. There were um, two or three big pools of blood on the mattress itself. There was blood on pillows, blankets. There was blood in the bathroom, a dining room chair on T-shirts and things around his apartment, like on the living room, like on the wall. It was just kind of everywhere. Um, There were a bunch of big pools of it, but then it was kind of smeared in other places, too. (laughs) How is how is this not? Yeah, this is where I sit and I'm like, am I like, am I really going this? Like, am I really crazy? Because it just doesn't add up. And it's like, I, I think, you know, I think we all know it was a murder, but we can't do anything about it at this point. But that's like not acceptable to me either. No, there's got to be some some way to uh, to change that determination. What, have you spoken with the medical examiner? Yeah, I met with him um, a couple of years ago. And he is 100% willing to change his determination. He says he just needs information from the police. When I've asked the police to, you know, can you give him more information? They say, well, he didn't request any. When I ask him, can you request any? He says, they need to give me a theory. He says, I don't care who did it. I don't care. You tell me it was John Doe that did it. I don't care who you're going to charge. Just give me the theory and he'll change it. And it's just kind of at a standstill at this point. So I did get an independent opinion from another uh, pathologist out of Ohio, I think he is, um, Dr. Bao. And he did rule the homicide just by looking at the autopsy and all of the information that I gathered. So I did provide that to police and um, they still want the Rhode Island Medical Examiner to deem it a homicide. So all the Rhode Island Medical Examiner needs, this is really good because this is where the um, awareness comes into play. All the Medical Examiner needs is for them to say a theory. Yep. That would cause him to say uh, this. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering what, like, the where's the holdup there? If they can go back to the f- photos or the sketches and say, well, there's blood here, here, and here. This person says it's conducive to uh, a single strike by a human being that caused this. Uh, it doesn't seem like I just don't understand why is this taxpayer's money they don't want to waste? Uh, I, I don't get this. Yeah, I um I don't I don't know. It's it's super unclear. When I sat down with the medical examiner, he he laughed. He said, Do you do you know what they gave me? And he pulled out the file and he was very cautious not to show me the pictures, which I appreciated. He was very thorough in all of his explanations. And he had two pieces of paper. One was the initial police report from when my dad was found, which says that my dad was conscious, that the apartment was neat and orderly, and there were no marks on him, which all has has been discredited. And the second piece of paper was the landlord's statement, which was written by his girlfriend. It is just also full of inaccuracies. And that's all the police gave him. And so when I asked police to give him more, they were kind of like, not our problem. Like if he needs more, he'll ask for it. So I don't know. I think at this point, I don't know if it's just so old that they're kind of like whatever about it. But if if that's all it takes, like, just do it. Yeah. And it's the same medical examiner that's uh, that's in the position. Yeah. 
Yeah, he still works part-time with the department. And what about your relationship with police and detectives? Has that, uh, have they had different detectives? And how is your relationship right now? So I was assigned a detective in 2021. He, you know, had his regular caseload, but he also was working on a couple cold cases. So the department, I reached out to the department here and there. And so finally they assigned somebody and I met with him a bunch. Um, and we had a really good relationship. He was helpful. I would send him different things and he would always clue me into what was going on. Um, and then when I started doing some of the media stuff and when I started getting a little vocal, they pulled him off the case, I think, because they um, will only let me talk to the chief of detectives at this point. And now he doesn't answer my emails. So I don't, I have no, I have no relationship with them. It's actually gotten really, it's, it's gotten really contentious really fast. Like they, they just don't respond anymore, which, um, I think, you know, I can be, I can ask a lot, but it's my dad and it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just trying to like work towards the same solution with you. Well, I think it's amazing that you said I can ask a lot, like as if you're asking for too much in regards to your dad's murder from law enforcement. What, what, what do they expect? Like they'll work on it when it's convenient. Yeah. They've made it kind of explicitly clear that they're not working on it. Like they will not do anything. They've told me flat out. We're not doing it until like, if something comes forward, if somebody comes forward or if some new piece of evidence comes to light, yeah, we'll look into it. But that's, that's it. Who's coming forward? Well, an independent forensic pathologist um, who rules it a homicide that doesn't count no. to them. No, right. What what does so so they actually need like a confession or or an eyewitness or something like that. They've said that, but then they've also said, but that doesn't hold up because they could rescind their statement, and then oh we, <laughs> yeah, so so that's kind of like null and void. And then we have, we requested all the DNA stuff and it turns out that half of the DNA was not even tested. Great. Can we test the DNA? Like, can we do this thing? And I found this like amazing resource, Season of Justice, that will pay for it to get sent out to a private lab and like this huge thing. And they outright refused. Nope. So then we said, well, why not retest the DNA? Well, that really couldn't be a factor in this. That's not really going to help solve this case. Okay, like what will like anything that we've come up with as far as like, will this help solve? Will media help solve the case? They're like, well, you took away the element of surprise when you went to the news. It's like, well, there is no element of surprise. You weren't interviewing anybody. So anything that we've come up with, they have just shut down every idea we've had. Okay, so DNA is not going to solve it. Uh, The independent pathologist, that's that's not going to solve it. Um, An eyewitness might spontaneously combust at some point. So. That's not going to solve it. So the only thing they were banking on was the element of surprise, which you ruined. Yeah. yeah. The element of surprise. I. What are we that's talking bullshit. about? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bunch of bullshit. We had everything. Yeah. We were just biding our time to spring our trap. That's what was that was the police's plan. We waited 13 years before we like did any like big media stuff. If you've been waiting 13 <laughs> years and I still ruined it for you, I'm sorry, but like. That must have been an incredible surprise that they were planning 13 yeah. years yeah. in the works. How in the world, who says that DNA 
isn't going to be a factor in solving. Who says DNA isn't going to be a factor in solving this crime that had multiple that that had DNA that wasn't tested? Right. So you just don't do it. So they they point out that because the the basement apartment where my dad was living, it only had like a regular door at the top. It wasn't a separate like it was a separate apartment, but the landlord had to go and use the laundry room down there. So technically his DNA could be in the apartment somewhere. But we made the point, well, if you tested the blood and someone else's blood is mixed in with my dad's blood, well, that shouldn't be there during like at this time. They're like, well, so I've, I've emailed, I think I'm up to four or five times that I've emailed the chief of detectives and said any update, like they said, we'll reach out to the department of health. We'll see if they're willing to retest. I'm up to like four or five times of asking for an update and they've yet to answer me. So I don't know. I'm going to assume at this point that they're just refusing. And is this Rhode Island state police or Cranston? uh, Cranston. I've asked for state police to get involved. Um, I've written letters to the attorney general and I've sat with the chief of um, criminal, the criminal division for the attorney general's office. I've said like, can we pull in state police? Like they have resources, they have, different i don't know like it's just a different set of eyes and they said no so and how small is that department cranston i think is the second largest city in rhode island which doesn't say much because it's rhode island um so it is a it is a decent sized department but and they so they did explain that state police involvement is reserved for smaller departments that need the resources but when you're talking about a cold case that's been going on this long cranston is just outright refusing to to do anything, what's the big deal? So this isn't the kind of thing where these detectives and the law enforcement at Cranston are completely incapable of solving a crime. They should be very capable of solving a murder yeah. um, without getting the state police's help or without calling in some outside organization. So the challenge is issued. I mean, that that is... That is absurd because if they're afraid of the media you're doing now, like, you know, you're just getting started on this. Yeah. I mean, there's so many like hypocritical things here, like, like the DNA. Yes. I mean, maybe the landlord and the landlord's girlfriend's DNA might be around that area because they did the laundry. But what if it is somebody else? Like, that's just awful police work. We're not, you're not saying test for their DNA. You're just saying test the DNA. Like, if it's if it's not theirs, then you have a case that someone else was there. They're, they shouldn't just write that off and say, well, obviously their DNA is going to be there. Well, okay, then do it and see if there's something else there. Right. And then the whole thing about like state police reserve to help smaller departments that aren't capable of doing this. Well, how long does it go before it's like, well, this department's not capable of doing it either? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they aren't capable of solving the, the case. They're clearly... Uh, I didn't think I was going to get this fired up. I'm sorry. There are a lot of um, inconsistencies. And that was one of the things I wrote, you know, a, a long letter to the attorney general. Um, I posted on the website. And after after that was kind of when things started to go downhill with the relationship with the police and I. And I just kind of called out all of the different things that I've been either told or I've I've been able to prove just by requesting information and how like inaccurate everything is lazy too i feel embarrassed that i even said that they did a good job like with that off the top comment but good lord they did in the beginning they did an investigation i have to give them credit um and they had i mean 
I don't homicides aren't frequent in Cranston and they pulled in like every detective. But I also think there were too many hands in the pot. There were like literally every detective that they had was working this case. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So are there any updates with the suspects? I don't even know if we've said their name, Lynn and Armand. Are there where what are they up to today? So Armand still lives in that apartment, which is weird to me. But, I mean, to each their own. I mean, I, I don't know anyone that stays in an apartment for, like, 20 years. Especially, I mean, you must know what happened down there. Because if, if there was a chance that somebody came in that apartment and killed somebody, I would be out of there in a, in a heartbeat. Um, he still lives in that apartment, and Lynn still lives in Rhode Island. The detective actually told me at one point that she he could not find her address. So we found her address, and we sent it to him and said, can you go talk to her? And he knocked on her door and she wouldn't answer. So that was kind of the extent of that. So they are still around. I still will see them out and about sometimes, which is uncomfortable, but it's Rhode Island. And um, that's just kind of it. Are they still a couple? No, they broke up maybe a year after this happened. And they're older, you know, like they're older at this, like now they were older then and they're, you know, they're, they're older now. And so that was one of the big things that I keep trying to impress on police was like, like we're, time is ticking. Like I'm not being rude, but like they're getting up there. Like if you're going to do anything about it, now's the time. So it's just another layer of like anxiety around the case. Is there a reward for information? Yeah. So I'm, I offered personally like a thousand dollar reward and for any information, please at least to an arrest, like dear God, just literally anything or at this point, like any information at all, because I've, I've got nothing to work off of. And I've, I am working with a, a nonprofit about possibly raising more money for that but without the homicide ruling it's kind of impossible to get any funding or any support from like outside uh resources i gotta change the mood a little bit from uh this incredibly frustrating feeling that i'm having you said your dad was a carpenter did was there anything that he like specialized in yeah he did roofs a lot roofs well, that's what i remember i remember going to like job sites with him and he would be doing a roof and um i would get i would go around with the little magnetic like hand roller thing and pick up all the nails. That was my job. So I, yeah, I remember like vividly the summer times him being up on roofs. Good for him. You mentioned he was watching the ball game. Uh, when you said that, did you mean the Red Sox or the Yankees? Red Sox always. Okay, good. That's the correct answer. Yep. No, no Yankees around here. <laughs> well, damn. I mean, this is just like a story that leaves you really wanting to do more. So you're raising the awareness, and I know people who have listened to you, you've done other shows, and people who are listening here, uh, what do you typically say to people? Like, do they, is there a number to call? Is there something that they can do aside from, you know, sharing uh, your, your dad's story and your story? Yeah, so um, like I said, we have the website set up, which is like full of all of our, the information that we've gathered. So the numbers are there. There's a, a line for the Cranston Police Department. And um, I've also set up an anonymous text call line. If anybody has information that doesn't feel comfortable going to police, I have this line set up for that reason. Keep sharing things. I think it's finally reaching the point where people know my dad's name, which is not to say like, I want my dad to be famous. No, certainly not for this. Like this was the, this is the last community I want to be a part of, but it's, it's gaining some traction and it's getting the attention that he deserved for like so many years. So I think if by some chance someone somewhere hears it and says, I was in the bar that night and I remember hearing so-and-so say something, just 
call the police or let me know like it's it can sound so like minuscule and so tiny like it's it's a non-detail but at this point any information is good information